chapter 21 as we're going to head to Luke chapter number 21 this morning. And again, we are going to cover a a large chunk of Scripture this morning as we try to understand a little bit from this uh, final, really final sermon that Jesus is going to give, final kind of teaching to his disciples before he heads into what's going to result next uh, couple weeks with his eventual betrayal, his uh, sham of a trial, his crucifixion and resurrection. And Luke chapter 21, starting in verse number 5, he's going to try and instill in his disciples an understanding of what's going to be happening over these next few uh, days, as well as years that's to come. If you remember where we've been in the story, Jesus has been now in Jerusalem for a couple of days in this Passion Week. And uh, we saw the last couple of Sundays, Jesus in direct confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious leaders that have come to try and disprove Jesus and try and bring some sort of kind of gotcha questioning that's going to result in him uh, either admitting to them, to their suspicion that he's just another man, or catch him in the act in their minds of, of blasphemy. And Jesus has really winsomely navigated those situations. We saw him last week warn his disciples against these kind of religious leaders and say you need to be careful of those people with the long fancy robes and the big fancy prayers that are taking advantage of people we saw the the reality of what a relationship with jesus is based on has nothing to do with our religious performance but everything to do on with the grace and mercy of jesus and then jesus as he's kind of leaving the temple mount he begins a narrative with his disciples and i want to read the whole chunk okay so we're going to start uh chapter 21 verse 5 stay with me and uh, as we read it i imagine Uh, Some things will stick out to you and say, what does that mean? And hopefully by the end of our time, uh, you'll get a little bit more understanding of it. Luke chapter 21, verse number 5. The Bible says, and as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with, with beautiful goodly stones and gifts. Jesus said, as for these things which you behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but... When shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation, shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Starting to sound a little bit like we're watching the news, isn't it, right? Great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs there shall be from heaven. But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. For there shall not a hair of your head perish. And your patience possess you, your souls. And when you shall see Jerusalem 
compassed with armies. Then know that the desolation is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written would be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. For they shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. I always like when you're following along and hear the page turn, right, when we're there. Yeah, that's where that is. That's funny. Verse 24, they shall fall with the edge of the sword, shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. There shall be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. The sea and the waves will roar, men's hearts failing them for fear. And for looking after these things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming, and a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable, saying, Behold the fig tree and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all will be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, lest any times your heart be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day would come upon you unaware. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch you, therefore. Pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things which shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the day, he was teaching in the temple. And at night, he went out and abode in the mountain that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple to hear him. As I was reading, I occasionally looked up and saw some glossy eyes, some confused faces, right? Um, heavy, right? This is the third major passage that Jesus is dealing with the topic of the end times that we've studied to this point in the Gospel of Luke. But we read it and we kind of get confused some of us said well that's a very long section of scripture are we really going to cover every verse of this or we're going to be here till three o'clock right uh getting concerned right there's there's pregnant women running away in the text there's stars falling like what are we talking about and this can kind of seem like a little bit of a complicated mess of scripture but it's really actually quite simple what jesus is trying to communicate here and it kind of comes into focus the more you understand the structure of this text so there's kind of four sections in it that we'll break up this morning. We're going to see him prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem, something that's already happened in the past. We're going to see Jesus prophesying about something that's to come, which is the second coming of Jesus. Then he's going to instill some truths in our hearts to be confident in the reliability of God's word and to wait with anticipation for his coming. So what we're going to do is we're going to break it up that way. Okay, the first thing I want you to kind of instill in us and to understand is, uh, number one, there in your outline, Jesus foretells the signs of the times. Jesus foretells the sign of the times. Jesus in this text is talking about the future. And in the text, he's going to be describing two events, two unique events, the fall of Jerusalem and the consummate final return of Jesus. So again, the first event was going to happen and did happen about 40 years after Jesus predicted it. At this point, it stands in future for Jesus. For us, looking back, it stands in history. The second event that he's describing is a distant reality, 
one that we are still waiting for and longing for and anticipating today. And it can get a little confusing because as you read the text, you're wondering which part of this is about Jerusalem, which part of this is about Jesus coming again, which part of this is for here and now, which part of this is to come. And uh, one of the best ways I've heard this explained is uh, something called prophetic telescoping, okay? Um, most of you guys grew up on the East Coast where we have trees, okay? Trees are awesome. I love it right now. Um, I don't love it when they all fall on the ground or all the leaves are on the ground, but at this point, I love it. But uh, where I lived for a few years, where Sarah grew up in California, there, there really are no trees, okay? They're cactus is what we see everywhere. Joshua trees is what they're called. Um, but the beautiful thing about it is that you could see miles and miles and miles away, really flat, kind of desolate desert area. But in between where they lived and Los Angeles was the um, Sierra Nevada Mountains, I think. Yeah, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, these huge mountain ranges you would see from where they lived. And as you looked at it, I, I'm going to put a picture up here, Jen, of this mountain range. Um, you're kind of looking up at the mountain range, and you see what looks like, you know, all these mountains in the distance, right? It almost looks kind of... Uh, not two-dimensional, but you, you see it, and it looks flat against the surface. The closer you get, you realize that, while wow, these peaks, a lot of them are separated by miles in between them, right? From your distance, you see one image. As you get closer, you realize, okay, this is one event, this is another event, this is another event. If you were to describe it from this point of view, you would be describing multiple different ranges of mountains, right? Multiple different peaks of mountains. Um, next, you'll see a really beautiful art display, okay? Um, I did not draw this. Someone on the internet drew this, but I thought I, can, I, I saw it and I have to use it. I have to use it. So um, this is really how most prophecy works in the Bible. This is true from um, prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, those that prophesied from the Old Testament. They would see things and they would both be speaking to immediate situations as well as prophecies. So like, uh, for example, the prophecy in Isaiah about um, the names of Jesus, right? You should, the, the son shall come and be a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Son, our Father, the Prince of Peace. This is, this is addressing a one independent situation or a present situation that Isaiah is seeing, as well as the coming Messiah, which is that, that first advent of Christ. And also prophets would see things that would be taking place at the second coming of Christ. So they see it all in one picture, um, but many of these things are separated by centuries, if not millennia between them, Okay. One peak is in the same line as the other peaks. When you get into them, you realize they're miles and miles and miles apart. That's how this passage is kind of broken up. Okay, there's two events that it seems like he's talking about something that's happening in the same minute. Something's happening in the same timeline. But as you get closer and closer into the text, you realize he's talking about multiple peaks here. Okay, he's talking about things that are, that are miles apart. Okay, the first event that we're going to see is that first mountain range that Jesus is, is seeing in this moment. He's teaching us here, and it's purposeful in the way that he's doing this, because he's doing it in such a way that the assurance we have that the first event took place is the same assurance we should have that the second event is going to take place. Does that make sense? So he's basically saying, he's connecting these in a way of, hey, you know that Rome is going to fall. For us looking back, we know that Rome, or sorry, that Jerusalem fell because of Rome. The same confidence we have in that, he's now saying the same confidence we can have that the second event is going to happen just as he describes it. Again, the hootie snooty, if you want to impress your friends, the water cooler term for that is prophetic telescoping, okay? A prophecy has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, uh, a near reality and a far reality. And that near fulfillment is a foreshadow. It's a type, as it were. It's a guarantee of what will be the second prophecy, Okay? 
by way of analogy, okay, when uh, I was growing up, we, my parents met in Michigan. Uh, that's where I got my, my sports fandoms, okay? Uh, met, they met in Michigan, and uh, they, my dad worked for General Motors for 35 years. We transferred down to the Nashville, Tennessee area when a plant opened. But all of our family predominantly was still back in Michigan. So most of our vacations were driving from Nashville up to the Ann Arbor area of Michigan, and it was a drive that we made dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Um, I remember getting woken up at 2 a.m., thrown to the back of a Chevy Astro van, and driven up to, driven up to Michigan on multiple different occasions. Anytime I mention a Chevy Astro van, I'm just like, I had a Chevy Astro van. Wow, well, what a, they sold a lot of Chevy Astro vans, didn't they? Um, we drove on the way up. I can remember there was always this kind of final stop area. It was right around Toledo, Ohio, where it would be the final kind of gas fill up, final place to get some food, get some snacks. And you just kind of knew this is your last chance to go to the bathroom. Okay, this is your last chance to get out, get a snack, last chance to stretch your legs, because next is, is grandpa's house, right? The next stop is going to be the final destination. You just knew that once I got there, the next stop is going to be the final destination. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here, okay? He's showing us that we're somewhere between Toledo and grandpa's house, okay? <laughs> we're somewhere in the timeline of events between the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming of Jesus. So that's kind of navigation-wise where we are. This final prophecy for the fall of Jerusalem um, is a guarantee for what will happen in the final prophecy. Okay, we are kind of in that Toledo of human history. Okay, have you ever been to Toledo? You haven't, you're not missing a whole, whole lot, if I'm honest. But um, we can now look back and confirm what we know happened in AD 70. That's the destruction of Jerusalem. We'll call this letter A, a prophecy that was fulfilled in history. Okay? We now, if you know history, if you study history, you enjoy history, look back on what took place in 70 AD as this moment where Jerusalem is destroyed, it's pillaged by the Romans, and for us, it is now becoming the Toledo, Ohio, that we know the next major event is around the corner, okay, that Jesus is coming back soon, that the final destination is the next final step. So Jesus tells us that in this temple that they're looking around at that's so impressive is eventually going to be destroyed. Now, I want you, we're going to work through this verse by verse, and you say, Andrew, we're really going to do every verse. We're going to do every verse, okay, and we're going to walk through it. Sometimes you come here, and if you're the first time, I promise I'm really funny sometimes. Uh, I, I tell myself that, at least, and, uh, you know, I enjoy illustrations and stories. Uh, this morning, we're going to open our Bibles up, we're going to lean in, we're going we're gonna to work through it, okay? There's not a whole lot of uh, commercial breaks along the way, so if you want more, next week we'll have some more commercials, I promise, but... Um, we'll kind of go verse by verse, start in verse number five and get the t context of this text and try and understand what Jesus is teaching us here, okay? So verse five in our Bibles, and as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. So really quick, the context here is Jesus is in Herod's temple. Uh, he's now been confronted by the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's witnessed the religious show that the widow gave last week of her, of her attempt to, to give to, to earn the good grace of Jesus. Now, if you don't know much about Herod's temple, it's a beautiful structure. One of the uh, ancient wonders of the world was Herod's temple. It was um, Israel's second temple. It was constructed about 500 years before Jesus got there um, by, by Solomon. It was then destroyed by the Babylonians. And now it's been rebuilt. And it's been in Israel at this point when Jesus is there about 500 years. But Herod the Great has now been doing this huge renovation project, expansion project. And at this point, the finishing touches aren't even on the temple as Jesus is there. 
but it's this incredible structure. There's literally a whole side of it that's plated in gold where when the sun would rise, it would just kind of glimmer off the side of the temple. The most ornate, incredibly beautiful kind of structure you can think of. There would be these foundational stones that if you went to Israel this morning, you could still see. And you think of stones, you think of stones. These are like the size of, of taxi cars, okay? They'd be kind of foundational stones of, these, uh, of the temple wall. There was marble inlay everywhere, gold-plated random things, precious jewels embedded in the structure just to look at. It was incredible. And basically, as Jesus is talking, his disciples are just kind of looking around like, this is unbelievable, Right? Look at the beauty, look at the stones. Look at, like they put, a, they put a gym here and no one's even looking here, right? This is incredible, right? And Jesus uh, kind of goes and speaks to them, verse number six, and says, hey, all of these walls that you're looking at, the day will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another. This shall not be thrown down. So they're on the tour. They're looking around, they're impressed. They're admiring the beauty of the temple and Jesus says, yeah, this whole thing's coming down. <laughs> yeah, enjoy it now, right? Because it's, it's not going to last for too long. Now, to say that doesn't seem like a huge deal in our context, right? Like, um, if someone came in here and said, yeah, this is a nice church building, but it's all going to burn down, we'd be like, we'd be bummed because we put a lot of work into it, right? But um, it's been helpful. It's been a nice space for us. We've got some classrooms, and um, we don't have a lake in the other room anymore. Like, we've made some progress in here. We'd be sad, right? But if, if the whole thing burnt down, we'd go rent a hall somewhere, we'd go meet in a school, we'd, we'd say, hey, next week we're going to be here instead, we'll be fine, right? Uh, we'll be okay, we don't quite understand it the same way. For the Jews, the temple was not, hey, if the, if the temple's destroyed, we'll just go find a new place to meet. The temple was more than just a building, like it is for us. It, it was the very center of their faith. This is where their sacrifices were made. This is where the Old Testament tells us that God's presence dwelt. This is where the priest performed all their priestly duties. This, this is the, the, the blessings of God that have kind of poured out on this structure. So Jesus' statement in verse 6 is pretty shocking. And this thing where the presence of God dwells, this, this place where your religion is so focused on, it's, it's going to be gone. It's going to be destroyed. And the whole system that kind of goes with this religious structure is going to go with it. And by the way, this happened. This is really well documented in history. 70 A.D., uh, Romans ransacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. Jesus, at this point, just to give you a timeline, is about 30 A.D. Between 30 and 33 A.D. is about this point, time period. The book of Acts that records kind of the, the church in Jerusalem was written by around A.D. 60. So about 10 years after the book of Acts is completed, in, in A.D. 70, this is when the Romans come in and they completely destroy Jerusalem. There's a 40-year window between what Jesus says and when this is happening. And he tells the people, this is the, they're eyeing it, this is so beautiful, this whole thing's coming down. And then they ask a pretty natural question, look at verse 7, what do they ask? Master, when shall these things be? In other words, when's this going to happen? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? That's a pretty important question that most of us would ask, right? Hey, this building's going to be destroyed, the temple's going to be ransacked, there's not going to be one stone left on another. Okay, when, right? Like, is there, a, is there a timeline for this Jesus? Should I be looking out for things? What he does is he gives us a few things not to look out for, and then he tells them what to look for, okay? And uh, let's look at verse number eight. First thing he says, verse number eight says, take heed that you be not deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, I am Christ, the time is near. Go you not therefore after them. So first he says, that, 
there's going to be some false teachers that come up and say, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, the end is drawing near. There's going to be some false prophets, and they're going to say, hey, I'm the guy, I'm bringing in the end of the world, the time is now. Jesus says, just ignore those dudes, okay? Um, we've learned that every generation has these guys, okay? They're the, the David Kresh's, the Jim Joneses, like we, the, every generation has had these kind of characters, okay? It's not new to our modern times. This happened a lot through the ancient world as well. Uh, they don't all come out of Texas, okay? They came out of Israel too, right? Um, but just this kind of, if you're from Texas, I apologize. Um, but these guys would kind of show up. They got, still today, they got these funny little websites that are gaining a following. And so Jesus predicts, he says, hey, ignore these guys, okay? They don't really know what they're talking about, okay? Don't follow after them. History actually holds there were several really influential leaders in Israel that rose up during these 40 years that tried to lead people astray, that really led some really sizable, dis- kind of a disruptive movements. And Jesus says, don't sweat it. That's not, that's not a sign that the end is coming, okay? Then he continues, uh, verse number nine. But ye shall hear of wars and commotions. Be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is still not by and by. So he said, listen, there's gonna be wars. There's gonna be commotions. Commotion is just like a mob, okay, of of angry people rising up in the community, agitated, worked up. And Jesus says, listen, that's going to happen. And I love his command. Don't be terrified. Don't freak out. Stay calm. Okay? That's not a sign that you're looking for. It literally tells them, don't, don't freak. Okay? The Greek word for that is don't lose your mind. When things are going crazy in the world, he says, don't lose your mind. That's a good application for us today in the world that we live in. Very chaotic. Right, very, very commotions, wars. We live in a world right now that is losing its mind. And Jesus is saying that ought not to be true for the follower of Jesus. We ought not to get frantic. We ought not to be terrified. We ought not to lose our minds. We stay grounded in Jesus. We stay grounded in our faith. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, even when the mob rises up and the commotions are happening, the craziness is around us, I'm establishing Jesus. Right? I don't have to be terrified or fearful. And then he gives them the signs to look for. Okay, let's start in verse number 10. Then he said unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. So Jesus is saying there's going to be these wars and battles and really a lot of natural disasters kind of spiking up before the, the destruction of Jerusalem and so being before the, the second coming of Jesus. And this is pretty consistent across human history. Uh, wars have existed for a long time, okay? Difficulties, commotions. But these 40 years actually leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, it was particularly bloody and intense. Josephus writes about this a lot. There's some 20,000 Jews that were killed in Caesarea, 13,000 killed in Scathopolis, 50,000 died in Alexandria, 10,000 died in Damascus. Historians record that between... Um, this time period and when the, the destruction of Jerusalem happens, there's actually several significant famines. We see that in Acts chapter 11 taking place, a famine that impacted the entire known world. There's also several major earthquakes. One of them's cool, right? Where Paul and Silas are in jail, earthquake comes, right? They're released from prison. Everything Jesus said was going to happen, happened. And it happened in these 40 years even leading up to this event. And then if he hasn't given them enough good news... Hey, there's going to be wars and famines and destruction and earthquakes. 
He's going to tell them one more little and positive, encouraging Caleb message in verse number 12. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons and be brought for kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall now turn to you for a testimony. So now he's not just talking about wars and natural disasters out there. He's talking to his disciples about what's going to happen to them. He said, there's going to be persecution that comes upon you. you know, never, everyone's going to applaud you as my disciples and as my followers. They're going to be persecuting you. And if you read the book of Acts, that's a pretty good summarization of what the life of the disciples is going to look like. This verse describes very well what the next 40 years is going to look like for the apostles of Jesus. Persecution ramps up, Acts 4 and 5, Acts chapter 7, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr, stoned for his faith in Jesus. Later on, the apostle Paul is brought before governors and rulers just like what Jesus says is going to happen here. And what does he do? He gives an opportunity for his testimony to go forth. It's exactly what happened. These first century believers experienced immense persecution, but they're faithful to Christ. And as a result, the gospel spreads like wildfire during these first few decades. Now, side note, a good application for us as Christians is if Jesus told his disciples this is what was waiting for them over life of following Jesus, we'd be foolish not to think that occasionally we might face some persecution or difficulties or struggles or at least not being celebrated for our faith in Jesus. We're going to face trial and suffering and persecution. I wish it wasn't that way. But look at what he says. He says these moments offer you an opportunity for a testimony. In other words, it offers you an opportunity to speak up about your faith. I wish, I wish that our greatest witness was when we were thriving. I wish that our greatest witness was when we lived in our mansions and we had our multiple fleet of vehicles and we didn't have a kink in your neck like I have today. Like, I wish that was the moment where people listened to what we had to say. I wish that was our chance to have our greatest witness. When we're just living life and thriving and everything's going awesome and people just come up and be like, Andrew, you're awesome. Tell me about Jesus because your life looks awesome. It's not how it works, is it? We say, come on into our palace and let's talk about it. Right? That's not how it works. Our greatest time of witness is often a hospital bedside of ourselves or family members. Often our hardest moments are best opportunities to have that testimony go forth. Let's keep going, verse 14. Settle it, establish it in your hearts. Not to meditate before what you shall answer, for I'll give you a mouth and wisdom with all your adversaries shall not be able to gain, say, nor resist. The disciples are already thinking, right? Oh, no, I'm going to go before a ruler. I've got to figure out what I'm going to say. And he says, don't worry about that right now, okay? I'm going to help you. We see that all throughout the, the story of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit giving words to his people. Verse 16, you shall be betrayed, both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not a hair of your head perish. Wait a second. Does that seem like a contradiction to you? They're going to put you to death, but not one hair on your head will perish. That, that doesn't seem to make much sense, right? Some of you, they're going to offer you up. You're going to be betrayed by your family. You're going to die for your faith in Jesus, he's telling his disciples, and almost all of them will. But then he says, don't worry, not a hair of your head will perish. You'll gain your life. Verse 19, your patience possess your souls. So which is it? Will we be killed or will we be spared? 
the disciples are wondering. Will, will, will we face this martyrdom or will not a hair on my head be damaged, right? I think the answer is both. Both for the Christian. What does Paul say? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is, this is illustrative of this. He's saying, even though you'll lose your earthly life, not an eternal hair on your head will be touched. Some of you wish this passage was a little bit more literal as the hairs on your head have begun to disappear. Um, but that's not what he's talking about, okay? We know this. James, the disciple, Acts chapter 12, is actually beheaded, okay? He's losing hairs on his head, right? Like it's taking place in the lives of the disciples. That was too gory. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, but even though he lost his head, he's spared, is what Jesus is saying, in glory. He's spared in heaven. And so now Jesus is going to get a little bit more specific about these details. Verse 20, when you shall see Jerusalem are surrounded, compassed with armies, then know that the desolation is nigh. This is the exact same thing that happened in AD 66 when the emperor Titus and his army surrounded the city of Jerusalem. A five-month siege took place there. They took away all the food, all the water, took away everything they could have. Verse 21, then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein. He's being very practical. He's saying you're to be tempted when you see these armies coming to run into Jerusalem because there's big walls and safety. He's saying that's the opposite place of where you should go. You should run as far away as possible, right? That's not where you're going to find safety. This is ultimately the, the Jewish diaspora. This is the, the scattering of the Jews that happens in AD 70 that doesn't really get remedied until 1948 when the Jews are regathered in Israel. So this is the, the spreading of the, of the Jews. Some of them are going to North Africa. A lot of them are going to kind of go into Eastern Europe. They're going to run the opposite direction. Get out of Dodge, okay, run. Verse 22, for these be the days of wrath and vengeance that all these things which are written may be fulfilled. He's saying if you're in the city, do everything you can to get out of the city to escape the great judgment that's coming. In other words, how to escape the wrath that is waiting for them. And church, this just so you know, this is a foreshadow we're talking about in a few minutes as well as a historic event. It's a foreshadow of the later event that Jesus is gonna warn us about where the wrath of God will once again be poured out upon humanity and how to avoid that, how to escape the coming wrath of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself, okay? Verse 23. Woe unto them that are with child and them that give suck in those days, for they shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They shall fall with the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive to all nations. Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Gulp, right? It is a, it's a heavy passage. It's a sad passage where Jesus describes the literal plights of some very real people, pregnant women, nursing mothers of this time, de destroyed, slain. And it was a, a brutal scene that took place during that five-month siege where the army was completely destroyed. Josephus estimates that in this conflict, more than 1.1 million people were killed. Romans came in, killed the entire army, killed the elderly, took about 100,000 people slaves, and only about 40,000 escaped. Incredibly bloody. And guess what? 2,000 years later, that temple is still in shambles. It has not been rebuilt. You can go this morning and you will not find the temple. In fact, a Jewish mosque has been constructed over the site of where the temple was. Jesus predicted this very real event, very real that you can even go and travel this morning and see evidence of, and he did it 40 years prior to the event taking place. And he doesn't just predict it as a warning. 
He's warning them how to escape not just the wrath and coming in Jerusalem, but the wrath that is coming. The wrath that is coming for all who aren't in Jesus. You notice the accuracy of this? As I was studying this past week, I, I knew this passage was talking about Jerusalem, but the more I kind of dug into the history of it, Jesus just gives details that are unbelievable. Uh, the fact that they're going to lay siege to the city, they're going to compass around the city, the, the slaughter that's going to take place here. He's giving an unbelievable amount of detail, and I think he does it for a few different reasons. One is to give us a reassurance of the truth of Jesus' identity as the Messiah, but also to guarantee us, hey, Toledo, we're in Toledo. We saw Toledo happen. The final destination is coming too. That's letter B, the prophecy that's yet to come in the future. He transitions from this imminent destruction of Jerusalem, which has happened in history, to a more distant judgment, which is to come. More distant judgment, which is the final redemption of God's people of the second coming of Jesus. Okay, so if you're in the telescope, we saw the, the up close. Now we're going to zoom out to the distant. And Jesus' language switches in verse 25. He starts talking about cosmic things. He says, and there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and Upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves will roar. Men's hearts will fail them. In other words, they'll pass out for fear. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Really dramatic scene, isn't it? Stars falling, seas crashing, men passing out. Now, commentators agree and disagree on the nature of this, whether or not it's a meteor shower that's to come, whether it's more figurative of nature. But what we do know is that all people all around the world, whether it's more literal or figurative, this destruction of, of the stars and these things, is that there will be earth-shaking, earth-shattering events when the end is near. In other words, this isn't going to be localized. It's not going to be something that you're going to have to go online to read about or turn your cable news to see what's happening. There, there's going to be people all around the world responding in fear and foreboding and dread. So much fear that says there's going to be people fainting and hitting the ground. They're they're terrified of what's taking place. This is a picture that Jesus is painting of just sheer panic and pandemonium and chaos and judgment. The book of Revelation kind of confirms this kind of cataclysmic end of the world. There's going to be this great judgment coming on the entire planet that no one who's not in Jesus is immune to. What Jesus is saying is this earth is not just going to sort of fizzle out like a candle. Uh, my wife is really committed to getting every last bit of life out of a candle, Okay. For me, once it goes out the first time and all the wax is on the side of it, it's in the trash. Like, I'm not, I'm not there. Uh, she, yesterday, the day before, I laughed and she came to the kitchen and she had taken one of the candles that in my mind had burned out. And she had smashed it all together and she was transplanting a wick into the candle to possibly get us another hour of life out of this candle. I think she spent more time transplanting the candle than actually the time we would get out of the life of the candle, but that's not important, right? But we get the idea that eventually the world is just going to, fizzle out there's no fizzling okay there is no slow fade into this what we're seeing prophesied here is this kind of cataclysmic end of the world kind of moment the coming of the lord is a beginning of events we believe that starts with the rapture of the church ends with the creation of the new heavens and new earth and it stretches from jesus removing us through the period of the tribulation into the millennial kingdom into the final new creation you disagree with me on that, I'll prove to you while I'm right, and then we'll talk about it after, okay? But if that doesn't get you excited this morning, you know, you got your money's worth, 
going to go out in a big bang, right? This huge explosion. No, it's not exciting, right? It's kind of foreboding, right? It's kind of scary. Hey, the whole world's going to explode. Bring the music team back up. Let's, let's all have a great rest of the day, right? It's, it's intense, right? That, that's the terrifying part that he's referring to. But at the end, Jesus does bring some encouragement, verse 27. Then they shall see the Son of Man coming and a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption is drawing near. After 22 verses of weighty, heavy, hard stuff, pregnant ladies running away from the city, right? Like intense passages. This is the verse we're waiting for. And then shall we see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Look up. Lift up your heads, for your redemption is near. When the world is losing their heads, you can raise your head. Because your redemption is coming. What's what's, what's redemption? Redemption means to gain possession of something in exchange for a payment. right? You redeem something. Maybe you've been to a birthday party for kids at Chuck E. Cheese. If you have, I apologize, right? It's a tough environment. You go in, you spend some money. You, get, you used to get tokens. Now you give you a card. I don't even know. I, I'm more of a you know, analog guy. I don't want this card with tokens. I don't want the coins, but regardless, you go in there, you pay some money. You go around, you play games that are broken. Some of them work, some of them don't, and you get some tickets, right? Are you speaking from experience? Don't, it's, a, it's a soft, it's a touchy subject, right? But no, you get, you get your tickets, and then at the end of it, you spent $35 to get 12 tickets to go get one of those Chinese finger locks, okay? Uh, that I could have got for 12 cents on Amazon regardless. But you walk up and you have your tickets and you give them to the person and they say you have 140 tickets so you can redeem them, right? You, you turn in your tickets, you redeem that which you've earned. This is kind of what this passage is talking about, that Jesus is cashing in his tickets and he didn't just play some overpriced games at an overcrowded party venue. Jesus' payment was that he left heaven, put on flesh, entered time and space, lived life as a perfect human being, deserving of heaven, and he died a brutal death on a cross as the payment for my sins and your sins, rose again victoriously, is alive today, and it says that at this final consummate judgment of all things, he's going to cash in all of his chips to redeem his prize, which is his people, to bring unto himself for his glory to worship and to enjoy him forever. That's what we're waiting for, the redemption of God's people. That final day, friend, is gonna be the worst day in human history for anyone who has rejected Jesus and stands condemned in their sins. But for those of us who have entrusted our lives and souls to Jesus, those of us who had our sins forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross, this will be the best day in the history of the world. Jesus tells us, hey, listen up. When, When fear and terror and chaos fill the earth, Christians, straighten your heads, lift your heads, because your redemption's coming. Your redemption's drawing near. Matthew tells us very similarly in the Olivet Discourse as well. It means that Jesus is going to send out his holy angels to the four corners of the earth and bring all of us together, wrap us back together in Christ. What that means is that we're not just going to escape the wrath that is to come. We're going to be brought into the presence of Jesus in his glory. And in that moment, it won't be fear that is consuming you anymore. It won't be terror or discouragement or depression or anxiety that is gripping you in that moment. More joy will flood your heart. More happiness will invade your soul. One thousand times more completeness than you ever understood could happen. will saturate your being. We'll experience that when we're brought into the presence of Jesus. So number two, so that was weird. Number two, what do we do today, okay? How to live 
in light of current events. I've gotten more emails the past couple of weeks, and they're good emails, about what's going on in the, the region of the Middle East and Israel of, is this the end? Um, and what I've known throughout history is that when people say this is the end, it hasn't happened yet, okay? Um, what I do know is that when there's a focus and attention on things that are happening in the Middle East, there's a lot of prophecies that take place concerning Israel, concerning the Middle East, that we ought to have our, our, our interest peaked, okay? We ought to be paying attention, but understand, Christian, we are not to be terrified. We're not to be fearful. We're not to be filled with anxiety, looking down, looking around, figuring out what's happening. What does Jesus say? He says to look up, look up. So I think Jesus in this text is starting to feel his disciples getting a little, uh, this is a lot, Jesus, right? We're going to die, we're going to be betrayed, the end of the world is coming, but hey, we're, we're, Jesus is coming back, this is a lot, okay? How do we live? Letter A, Jesus tells us to be confident in the reliability of God's word. Be confident in the reliability of God's word. I think the reason that Jesus embeds, again, this future reality of what's to come and the second coming of Jesus, side by side with the prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem that it can be proven, is because he wants us this morning to know with certainty that that day is coming, and the great, same amount of certainty we have that that day already came. To know and be confident in the reliability of God's word, that these words we read this morning are not just speculation. Jesus' prophecies are not just conjecture. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a maybe, possibly. You can bank your whole life on what Jesus says in his word. And in fact, that's where Jesus goes next. He talks about it from a fig tree. If you're a farmer, you know more about this than I do, but I tried to do a little homework this week, verse 29. So he spoke to them a parable, behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they shoot forth or bud, you see and know of your own selves that summer is coming. So likewise, you, when you see these things, shall come to pass. Know you that the kingdom of God is coming. Truly, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all this be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So here Jesus uses horticulture, agriculture, as an illustration. He's saying there's a cycle to the world. There's a cycle to the way plants work. You see a fig tree or you see a tree. And the buds are coming. The leaves are starting to come out. He's saying, you know, good weather's coming, right? Summer's coming. Summer's around the corner. The trees aren't budding right now. Otherwise, you've got a confused tree, right? The trees, trees don't bud, and then comes winter. That's not the way the cycle of the trees happen. You can know with a certainty that when the tree is budding, summer is coming. First comes the bud, then comes the summer. It happens every year. He says, in the same way, you can know when these things are happening, the kingdom of God is coming. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are these things? Well, there's a few of them in this text that Jesus is speaking to his original audience about. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. Because he says in the very next verse, this generation shall not pass away until these things are fulfilled. In other words, these people are going to experience that which I'm talking about. So he predicted the first event so that we would know that the second event is sure to happen. The first event is Toledo. The second event is the destination. He says in verse 33 that his words, I love this, are so certain that though heaven and earth may all pass away, Jesus' word will not. We're all pretty confident in the ground under our feet. You ever gotten off like a roller coaster or maybe a ride or a plane if you're scared of flying and you get on the ground and you like just want to hug the ground? right? Like, I made it. I survived. I, I've always really enjoyed roller coasters, kind of thrill rides. Um, I've noticed as I get older, it just takes me a little bit longer to recover after I get off of it, right? Um, 
Sarah and I were on a, on a ride just a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, and she got off. And after we got off, there was an area on the side of the ride where it said, like, recovery zone. And I'm like, they've, they've thought this through, right? And I walked in the recovery zone. There's a bench, <laughs> there's a water fountain, and there's a trash can. And I said, all right, this is good. Okay, they've thought it all through, right? It just takes us a few minutes, kind of we're disoriented. We don't know where we are. just feels good to have your feet back on solid earth again, right? We have confidence in the earth. I don't have confidence in whatever ride it is, bro. I don't have confidence in the plane that I'm in, but I have, I have confidence in the ground, right? Maybe you go up to the top of the Empire State Building, you're looking around, you feel the, the building swaying a little bit, and I just want to get down to the ground, right? Because when I'm on the ground, I have confidence. He's saying, you should have more confidence in the reliability of the word of God than you do in the earth. Because even if the earth was to be destructed, God's words will not be destructed. Even if heaven was to fall, chicken little style, right? Heaven shall pass away, the earth shall pass away, my word shall not pass away. Christian, we got to live with a great assurance and confidence to look forward to that last day. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's not will it happen. It's not maybe will, could it happen. We've already been to Toledo. The final destination's next, folks. We've already seen Jerusalem fall. Next up is the return of Jesus, our sure redemption that we are longing for and waiting for. How do we live? And I'll be done. Three, three things I want to give you that Jesus gives his disciples. I put them under one point so you wouldn't be scared. There would be three more points, all right? <laughs> be watchful, be prayerful, be faithful, okay? How do we live? Andrew, the world's going crazy. There's people attacking different people. There's, there's wars. There's, yeah, we, absolutely. This is a, a scary thing that's taking place. There's a lot of danger. There's a lot of evil that's existing in our world. What, what do I do? You got to be watchful. You got to be prayerful. You ought to be faithful. I don't have a confidence in the, the assurance of my heart is that God's word is true. God's plan will be accomplished. So I'm going to be watchful. I'm going to be prayerful. I'm going to be faithful. Verse 37. In the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. Sorry, verse 34. And take heed to yourselves, lest any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day come upon you and you'll be unaware. For as a snare it shall come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. So watch, verse 36. And pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus tells us how to prepare. He says, be watchful. Be watchful. Specifically, verse number 34, take heed to yourselves. Check yourself. In our house, we say, check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? You need to take inventory. You need to watch yourself. You need to be careful lest your hearts will be overcharged. Then he uses these words, surfeiting and drunkenness. Okay, we all know, for the most of us, know what drunkenness is, right? Surfeiting is really almost synonymous with drunkenness. It's basically the stupid things you do when you're drunk, okay? Uh, so drunkenness, we don't want to live that way. You also don't want to be uh, involved in all the craziness you're involved in when you are. So he's saying, hey, you need to watch yourself so you're not given over to this kind of, almost kind of a Jesus coming back, so I'm just going to live it up. Kind of the younger brother of the prodigal son story. I'm going to sow my wild oats. I'm going to live for the feel-good moments. Hey, Jesus is coming back. That doesn't mean that we should just pour a bunch of cocktails and party until he gets here. Okay, that's not, that's not the message of Jesus. Just be careful. Be watchful. And then he warns about the other side. And he says, not be, be surfeiting or drunkenness. And then he says, and the cares of this life. Some of you guys, that's not appealing to you at all. Like, whatever this, the, like, have fun lifestyle. You don't. You don't. You got too much stress to have fun, right? I've got stuff to care about. I've got the cares of this life now in me. 
right? This is like the older brother of the prodigal son story. I've got responsibilities. I'm the rule follower. I'm the planner. I'm the investor. I'm the risk avoider. I'm the good life insurance policy holder. I wrap my kids in bubble wrap before they go to school. Like, I'm this guy, right? So you got the extreme, oh, I'm just going to live like a crazy person and just kind of live every day into its own and not think about the future. I've got the other one where I'm so concerned with the future that I can't even live in the moment where I'm at today. He says, don't live in either of these things. That's the cares of this life. And Jesus tells us this extreme way to live isn't the answer. This extreme way to live isn't the answer because both of these, he says, weigh down the heart. I love that. The, the Greek here literally means to make the heart heavy. They make you sink. You sink. But he says, instead of that, stay awake. At all times, praying for the strength to endure so we don't live recklessly and we don't live anxiously. How do we live? We live faithfully. We live faithfully. He calls us to pray for strength to walk faithfully with Jesus until he returns. He calls us to faithfully invest in the kingdom until the kingdom comes in full. The application of our sermon this morning, church, is pretty simple. We know this world is not our home. We know that Jesus is coming back to take us home. And while I'm in this world, I'm going to live on mission in this world, preparing this world for the world to come. And so Jesus invites us, be watchful, be prayerful, be faithful. If I can add one more, be hopeful. Be hopeful. So while we wait, that kind of gives me the the concept of are we ready for him to come? Three questions. I told you it was going to be a while. I'm almost done, folks, I promise. We don't live with the certainty, the readiness. Three questions. Number one, I would ask you most importantly, as we think about, am I ready for Jesus to return? Have I placed my faith in Jesus for the salvation of my soul? Have I received the forgiveness of Jesus? In 70 AD, the way to escape the judgment in Jerusalem was to run from the city. The way to escape the final judgment that is to come is to run to Jesus. Jesus came to be our shield from the wrath of God towards our sin. He died on a cross to take that wrath. Romans 10 says anyone who calls upon him for salvation will find it. So today can be that day for you. If you haven't yet received him as your savior, place your faith and trust in him, please let today be that day. Question number two, if Jesus returned today, what might you regret not having done? Are there some things in your life that Jesus has prompted you to to do? that you need to take action on? Are there issues in your life you need to address? Is there relationships you need to mend? Is there forgiveness you need to extend? Are there some resources that God's entrusted to you that you need to invest in in the kingdom or be generous with with other people? Is there something God has called you to give your energy to and put your hands to the plow on? I think a lot of us operate under the assumption there's plenty of time, and I hope there's plenty of time. I really do. But no, not next day is, is not a guarantee. Don't let that make you panic. Help it motivate you to be faithful. So number two, what would you regret? Then number three, and it's a little bit different than number two, how can you plan for future generations while you're getting ready to meet Jesus today? Here's what I'm going to explain. Some of you guys, you love prophecy. Like you find out we're talking about this, and you're like, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to take 13 pages of notes. I'm going to figure out what's going to happen. I'm going to open up on the internet and figure out all of it, right? I'm going straight to Revelation after this is done. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to watch Left Behind 1 through 19. I'm going to figure it all out. Like, I, you love end times. And that, that's awesome. I love prophecy. I love studying it. I love talking about it. I think Jesus painted it in such a way that the one person that thinks they know everything about it just proves to himself that he doesn't, okay? There's a lot here. There's a, lot of, there's a reason it's one of the more debated topics in churches and, and Christians. But I think there's a danger in getting overly obsessed, Okay? 
and well, what's to come? Jesus come back today. Let's wait for it. Let's wait for it while neglecting to prepare the future generations that are here. So here's, the, here's that tension. Jesus could literally come back today. He could. I believe that with all my heart. He could come back today. And I need to live my life in that kind of understanding. Jesus come back today. I need to make amends. I need to be ready. It could also be another thousand years until Jesus comes back. These first Christians thought Jesus was returning in their lifetime, right? And so I need to simultaneously be prepared for both of these realities. Jesus come back today. Jesus come back a thousand years from now. For me, I'm the father of three kids, okay? I don't want really to get so obsessed with the reality that Jesus come back today that I'm not thinking about how I lay a foundation for discipleship and Jesus following for my kids, for my children. How do I show them a life of faithfulness and fidelity? How do I prepare them? How do I save for their education? How do I plan ahead for their generations? How do I mold and shape their hearts so they're able to disciple their kids? My eventual grandkids and great-grandkids and great-grandkids. How do we as a church do the same thing? Think not only for today, but for generations to come. This is one of the things I love about our church is the multi-generational aspect of our church. There's a lot of gray hair and there's a lot of babies in our church, okay? And some of you that your hair is actually gray and you're not telling anybody else about it. We know the dye, all right? We figured you out. No, but I'm just kidding. Um, like there's, there's older generations, there's younger generations, right? And what I love about the older generation, especially in our church, is this open-handedness that there's, like when we sang Blessed Assurance this morning and we got to the hymn, I looked around at some of the older folks in this room, the biggest smile crept in their face. I know this one, right? They started singing, right? I love that. But you know, there's a patience, there's a grace to the songs that they don't know. Because there's a certain open-handedness to, I'm not just living about Jesus come back today. I would love that there's a church here that's going to be here for generations after me. To raise up my kids, to raise up my grandkids. We're not just doing this for here and now, we're doing this for the future. How do we plant churches that are faithful, gospel-centered churches in New England, to the ends of the earth? Those churches that we're planning and reaching, these missionaries that we're sending out, they're going to they're gonna reach generations and people that, that we won't even meet till we get to heaven. But we're going to plan and we're going to invest to live our lives in such a way to leave a legacy and generational kind of legacy of faithfulness. I want to live, yes, for today, but I want to live also with the reality of tomorrow. How can I live in that tension? To personally plan for a long future of serving Jesus and simultaneously be prepared at Jesus' possible coming at any moment. I think it's those three things. Be watchful, be prayerful, be faithful, be hopeful. I mean, that'd be true of us this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, what an amazing, glorious, good news gospel.